0: another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. I'm Nate Larkin here flying solo today. My co-host David Hampton uh, was called away by a family emergency Um, but we have a great guest lined up so we're going to go ahead and do the show anyway. Um, let Let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered how you came to be who you are? And if you think of yourself as an addict, as I do, have you wondered how that happened? Uh, is there an inner defect in you? Uh, what set you up? I've been thinking a lot about it, been studying a lot about it. Uh, I, I've learned, by the way, that um, the studies of Identical twins, genetically identical people separated at birth, have shown quite clearly that there are certain aspects of personality that are genetically determined. Some parts of who I am and who you are, those were the cards we were dealt with, you know, from the moment of conception, we were destined to be that way. Things like, let's say, introversion and extroversion, those are strongly genetically influenced. And and even things like, you know, style preferences. It's amazing, really, the similarities uh, that can be found between identical twins separated at birth and raised in different by different families, even in different countries. However, there are also large aspects of our personality and of the way we understand ourselves, the world and our place in the world that are determined by experience, by nurture. It's not all nature. There is a very large component of nurture uh, in uh, the construction of the self, of the personality, the perceived self, who I am. Let's think of it this way. Um, You know, you and I came into this world completely helpless and completely naive. You know, unlike... You know, most mammals, uh, humans, you know, come into this world not able to do freaking anything. We are completely dependent from the moment we're born upon the goodwill and the care and the nurture of uh, caregivers, large people. Uh, And if they don't care about us, uh, we're going to die and die quickly. Because uh, you know we can't we can't feed ourselves uh, we can't roll over I mean we're not <laughs> so um, it's very very important that there be a bond between us and a uh, caregiver and that bond we have a there's a bonding chemical that actually is uh, given to the parent and to the child that connects us all right now we can't. Talk. We can't communicate our needs. We're only dimly aware of our needs. Uh, all we can do, if we're, uh, you know, if we're hungry or if uh, we're, you know, wet and messy, is cry. That's uh, that's our only means of communication. We we can fuss. We can cry. And so we are dependent upon the the attention, uh, the awareness and the care of a giant person or persons who will hear our sounds of distress, interpret them properly, come investigate, find out what needs to be done and uh, take away the discomfort and meet our needs. Um, now we're not processing information at a very high level. The human brain, the mature human brain is a freaking phenomenal computer and it's it's huge. It's why we have this nice, you know, this big head, right? And this this cerebral cortex where all of this uh, advanced thinking is done uh, has just barely begun to form. It, it can't form in the womb or, or we'd never fit through the birth canal. It, you know, so it's developing from the time we're born and it's not going to finish developing until our early twenties. So our, our thinking capacity is limited, but we have some. Uh, now, uh If we cry and the giant people respond to us and take care of our needs, we begin to conclude that we live in a safe and caring world. However, if um, we cry and a response does not come or the wrong response comes, or if a negative response, some kind of punishment comes, we're going to begin to conclude that we live in an unsafe world or that something is wrong with us. We're going to make up a story to fit our experience. We are, after all, from the moment we're born, meaning makers. Now, it could well be that there are a lot of things going on that are completely out of our awareness, that have nothing to do with the story we are telling ourselves. You know, perhaps there's been a terrible accident right before or right after we're born. Uh, that's taken one or, you know, more parents away. Uh, maybe we're very, very sick. Maybe we're isolated uh, medically while doctors work frantically to preserve our life. Uh, maybe we're born into the middle of a war. Maybe maybe our, maybe our family are refugees running for their lives. Maybe we're uh, the last uh, sibling in a large family. And there's just simply too much going on. Maybe a sibling is very, very sick. Uh, Maybe uh, we're born to a single mother who's working three jobs just to support us and the family. And there just is not enough attention to go around. Uh, Maybe mom and dad are on the brink of divorce. And they are so distracted and they're fighting so much that... that just too much. Or maybe we have a parent who's completely so distracted by a cell phone or by an addiction of one kind or another that um, they're just not paying attention. We're not mature enough to know that. Um, our conclusion is going to be that there's something wrong with us. and here's the thing. our survival is at stake we are somehow going to have to learn to manipulate the giant people around us to somehow get the attention. We've got to get attention somehow, and we've got to get care somehow. And we're going to begin to learn which of our behaviors elicits a positive response and which doesn't. Which which of our behaviors uh, elicits indifference, which elicits a negative response, a punishment of some kind on which elicits a positive response, care. We're also going to look to see whether what we do is acknowledged, is mirrored in some way by the person or the people who are caring for us. If when we smile, they smile, then we begin to internalize the idea that that how we feel matters. But if there's no response, if there's no attunement, we're going to start to believe that what we feel doesn't really matter at all. Because we need to cultivate the care of those around us, we are going to begin to curate our behavior in a way that assures our survival. We're going to start, if there are parts of our true self, our true personality, our true needs, our true desires that are, either ignored or punished, we're going to learn to hide those. And we're going to learn quickly. We're going to start that process early, hiding those aspects of our true self. And we're going to begin performing in a way that's going to bring us some care and attention. That that, that split brain, that split begins early. And it's and depending on the level of attunement of our caregivers and the amount of attention they give us, that split may be small or it may be large. You know, the 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 speed at which it grows and the 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 depth and breadth to which it grows is going to depend to a large degree on our surroundings, on our caregivers, and then later on, because this is a very long process, it takes us a long time to mature. As I told you earlier, our brain doesn't finish its uh, formation until our early 20s. Um, There's a period, you know, when uh, our survival, our our concern about survival uh, shifts from our parents to our peers when now it becomes absolutely essential during adolescence that we find acceptance from our peers, from a peer group, we're going to read clues from, from that group as to what's acceptable and what, and what isn't. And we're going to start to, uh, we're going to, we need to find a peer group that will uh, help to assure our survival. Uh, how large that group is going to be is going to depend, uh, depend to some degree on whether we are naturally introverted or naturally extroverted. It may be, uh, anyway, this gets, <laughs> this gets really complicated. But, but here's the deal. Uh, certainly by adolescence, uh, certainly by adulthood, and almost certainly by adolescence, let's put it that way, there's going to be quite a chasm between our public self the one that we take into the world to find uh, and, and maintain acceptance and our true self. There's going to be parts of ourselves that we're going to keep hidden, perhaps even hidden from ourselves. There are going to be voids, inner voids. And it's those voids that set us up for the possibility of addiction because when we encounter something that can fill that aching void, if only for a moment, Um, the relief that that brings, temporary as it may be, is going to be very, very powerful. If the pain of rejection can be obviated or medicated for a moment, if we can feel kind of the sense of inner acceptance and completion, if that can come by chemical means, then that chemical is going to be very, very attractive. If it can be, if we can, if we can, main, if, if we can achieve that sense, if that void can be filled by some sequence of behaviors, then that sequence is gonna be, it's gonna be very, very likely that we're gonna repeat, repeat that sequence. We have deep needs for acceptance for safety. We need to find our place in the world. We need to find where we belong. We need protection. We need care. Um, And the odds are um, we're going to construct a public self and we're going to find ways, often secretive ways, to fill in the voids beneath, below, and behind that public self to give us the courage to venture into the world. Well, uh, this is a very, very uh, you know, long and complicated process. We are storytellers. We learn to tell a story about ourselves and we believe the story. We, we make explanations for who we are. Some of those explanations are you know, factually and objectively true. And some are causal leaps that we have made uh, to explain who we are. And why we are the way we are, and how, what we what we do, and what we need to do. Recovery requires us not just to change behavior, but actually to begin to question our stories, uh, to walk those stories back in the company of other people, to put them under the light of day, begin to separate fact from fiction, and begin to write. A better story, a truer story, to start to separate fact from fiction and to live more and more in the world of of fact. It's not something that we can do alone, but we can make a lot of progress if we help, if we have the assistance of, of wise guides and fellow workers. That's what recovery is about. Anyway, we have an amazing guest today. Here's a woman who will share part of her story. Uh, here's a woman who has walked her story back in detail and continues to do so. Uh, not only her story, but over the course of, of a couple of decades, she has, as a therapist, as, uh, as a recovering person, active in a recovery community, uh, as, uh, and as a guide, as a teacher, as a, as a sage, she has helped thousands of people like you and me walk their story back, examine it, and, um, and, and build a better and truer story, something closer to the truth. Uh, I, a warning before, um, before we go to the story. Marnie, uh, God bless her, she is in such demand and is so busy, works so hard. Uh, It was truly a gift for her to agree to come on the podcast. She, uh, as it turns out, uh, coming off a season of hard work, she was on vacation, extended her vacation, but did not want to break her commitment to be with us on the podcast. So she is joining us from vacation. Uh, She is in the mountains of North Carolina. She had to go to a public Coffee shop in order to find a Wi Fi that would enable her to uh, do this interview. She's not alone. She's not in a soundproof booth. Um, there are other conversations going on in the background that, if you didn't know they were there, if you didn't expect them, could be distracting. I'm going uh, to, so I want you to be aware that there's going to be some background chatter. So, uh, and unfortunately, I got to see her on Zoom. So I could see the window of the coffee shop. I could see her at the table. I could see the spectacular scenery behind her. Uh, Like you, I could hear uh, filtered conversations from around her that kind of rise and fall in volume. Uh, So it's easier for me to follow what's going on. So Just imagine that uh, you and I are talking with Marnie and we're in a coffee shop. Because we are. We're in a coffee shop in the Carolina. Uh, Filter out the background noise when it comes and listen closely to this story uh, and the wisdom that she has to share with us. These are the insights that can change a life. Stay with us on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. I am so excited to have with us on this show a woman who I have admired now for, low these 20 years or more. She was very instrumental in my early recovery. Uh, I remember hearing Marnie at a speaker's meeting, an SA speaker's meeting more than 20 years ago. I was just... Uh <laughs> starting to face my own addiction, looking for some hope, looking for some direction. And I saw this very courageous woman tell her story in a room full of men. Yes. Uh, and it was uh, it was inspiring and hopeful to hear Thank your you. story. Marnie Farré is with us today. Hi, Marnie.
1: Hi, Nate. I had forgotten if I ever realized that you were in a speaker meeting where I shared my story. Yeah. But, <laughs> what a sweet connection. You are most kind. Uh, the 12 Steps or very instrumental, one of several pieces, but a crucial one of saving my life. And I actually still participate in an active 12-step-ish recovery. I can tell you a little bit more about that. But um,
0: yeah. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it has been more than 20 years, so I'm a little vague on the details. I remember the big pieces of your story. Uh, but I wonder if you'd be kind enough to just kind of give us a sketch of kind of what was that long and winding road that landed you in that room that night?
1: I, I am glad to. Um, I am a preacher's daughter, so I grew up in a very conservative Christian denomination with a dad who's very charismatic and brilliant and generous and gifted and an unrecovered sex addict. Mm. So my story began pre-birth uh, for being born into an addictive family system. Right also a very religious religious system but a very rigid disengaged family system Mm -hmm. Um, my mother died when i was three which there's so many layers to that but um for simplicity's sake i will say it was addiction related just as today we call it the partner of a sex addict was a life way too hard for her when her big big deal charismatic husband uh, was struggling with sexual issues and she was aware And she chose to ignore colon cancer for a year and a half. And she knew all about that disease. Her father had had it until it was so far advanced that she died about a year and a half after that. I was three years old. I had a sense my mother was choosing to die and leave me and my two older brothers as pre-verbal, as a toddler. And indeed that was true. Mm. And I'm so grateful that one of the true blessings of my recovery journey was of getting to spend a lot of time with a woman who had been her best friend. Oh, wow. So what, what a gift. That's how I heard my mother's story. But, but I tell you those pieces. Um, I was also sexually abused in my home for 15 years
2: mm. by
1: one of my father's same-sex lovers.
2: Wow. So
1: my home was whacked. It looked absolutely perfect on the outside. We were all over-functioners. All perfectionistic all driven people all meaning my father my two brothers and myself but what I know today is in terms of positive recovery what I have gotten to do and I'm always in the process of doing it is to heal those attachment breaches mm. those losses those things as well as the overt abuse but I know today that abandonment by my mother by my father, to his own addiction, to his perfectionism, to his shame, um, really set me up for a life of personal addiction. Wow. Um, and so I want to talk about the positive part more, but but kind of the rest of the story, probably by the time I was 17 or 18, I was a full-blown sex love relationship addict. Mm-hmm. I thought getting married would take care of the promiscuity problem. I hear that from addicts a lot, <laughs> the people of faith for whom, you know, full sexual activity is supposed to be within these particular constraints. Uh, And of course it didn't. I had affairs in that marriage. Uh, We divorced and very quickly I remarried um, to a man that next month I will have been married to 39 years. Wow! I still obviously was not a healthy person, but it was um, a very stable relationship and, and he's a kind and generous man. And I had no understanding of my own story or of his story. Uh, mm-hmm. very, today, I understand a very emotionally shut down person because of some of his own trauma and probably because of some neuroatypical brain stuff. But, but anyway, we, we do life together very, very well. And so uh, we married, had two children, had a period of sobriety, but not recovery.
2: Right, right.
1: I, had, I wasn't acting out, but I never dealt with my stuff. And then a lot of stresses came into our lives, particularly around my father, as his pornography use, his sexual addiction, his sexual offending, because sadly, with great regularity, he was sexual with male college students on the Christian College mm-hmm. campus where he was academic dean in charge of their academic future.
2: Wow. And that
1: just blew up in the mid 1980s. Very hugely, hugely public. A Me Too movement before there was a Me Too. Um, And that opened up so much in me. I returned to acting out. I could not get the um, emotional support uh, that I hoped for from my husband. And of course, like a good addict, I completely blamed him and Mm -hmm. went to the easiest route at that point, which was finding somebody else to fulfill that need and spent the next, I'd have to do the math, probably six or seven years acting out.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, that, that, That maybe is a little too much. All I know is no matter how long it was, it was deep and it was terrible. Uh, I was a great addict and I damn near destroyed my own self, my family, um, everything about me. The consequences came to surface. Uh, For me, the largest one that got my attention was cervical cancer caused by HPV. I had multiple surgeries in a year. I'm completely cured. It's very curable when you catch it early. They did mine, but I had big deal surgical complications. And for the first time, they long before recovery through that process as I continued to be sexually active with my most dear affair partner. Um, unprotected sex, of course, presumably passing HPV back and forth to each other.
2: Yeah. But yeah. That
1: really started hitting me. The words came to my mind was, Marnie, your life is unmanageable.
2: Wow.
1: And, I, you know, to me, uh, as a, a woman, I am a woman of Christian faith. I believe truth is truth and God's truth, however it presents to to whoever's listening and whatever system um, of a power greater than our, ourselves is, is truth.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, ultimately, uh, uh, very, very strong suicidal yeah, ideations like- caused me to ask for help. And a dear friend came and she said, she was just kind to me. And I poured out my story and she didn't shame me or tell me helpful stuff like, well, you are in an affair. Stop. Mm-hmm. Oh, gee, that's real helpful. Like I haven't tried that or as a Christian, have you prayed more? Oh gee, that's real helpful too. <laughs> you know, but she just said, I'm sorry.
2: Yeah.
1: Why are you sorry? She said, I'm sorry for your pain. And I said, I have screwed up my whole life. What? I created this pain. Why are you sorry for it? So I'm sorry you're in pain. Yeah. And I'm working with a counselor and I think she could help you. And at that point in 1991, that counselor was one of maybe two dozen people in the country who had trained with this young, up-and-coming psychologist, researcher named Dr. Patrick Carnes. Wow. Patrick Carnes is the Bill Wilson and our yeah. Our sex addiction field, and so she knew how to help me, and it began a marvelous path that I've I've been on in different ways um, since August the eighth, nineteen ninety two, and I'm so grateful for
0: that. I'm grateful to get
1: to share this story with your positive. um, (laughs) (laughs)
0: Wow, Uh, I do know that. For me, boy, I, I can just tell, even from your kind of parenthetical comments through as you're telling your story, that y- you have seen so many layers and continue to see layers yes. Of, yes. of influence and causality, digging deeper and deeper to find out yes. kind of what has helped to form your personality and influence your behavior. Right. Um, I know that for me, recovery in the beginning was a lot about learning a new way of living that was entirely foreign to me uh, to move more from, uh, you know, performing to living.
1: Yes. Uh,
0: what, yes what, do you re- what do you remember about those early years, those kind of adjustments uh, that you had to make, uh, that you were learning to make? and you, you, I, If you're like me, you got some coaching that you hadn't gotten before.
1: Yes, that's, that's true. The very early year of recovery, Nate, was absolute hell. Mm. Uh, I spent a year trying to get sober and stay sober. Yeah. So I started the journey in 1991. I call it a beginning sobriety date in 1992. Um, and, and that was because I would not let anybody else in. Right. I was just so isolated in my shame. And I would talk to my therapist. I mean, she's a licensed person. She's not going to talk to anybody else. But I wouldn't let anybody else into the story. Right. And so at that point, the prevailing wisdom was, in alcohol terms, you can either drink or deal with your stuff. You can't do both. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful that this therapist learned from Dr. Patrick Carnes that's not necessarily true. Yeah. So for me, I had to deal with a beginning part of some yeah. of all of this woundedness to overcome the shame enough to, as a woman, walk into a 12 step meeting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it wasn't until I could do that, which took me a year, yeah. and mm-hmm. that, that, um, then I began to, to really find healing because I found community yeah. and it was all men. And I knew I couldn't do that for a while. Uh, and went actually to a women's only AA meeting to do early recovery, which was marvelous. Yeah. Uh, and the woman that I asked to be my sponsor and I gave her a first step and I'm like, alcohol or even drugs. That's not my thing. Men, <laughs> oh, men, men is yeah. thing, yeah. And she just kind of, and she said, I think I must be a sex addict too, because I've been sober from drugs and alcohol for 20 years at that point, but it's the men. And so we got to work uh, steps around sex addiction together, which was such a gift. But anyway, to get back now to your to your real answer, it was at that point of starting to allow people in, of starting mm-hmm. to let see me, to be seen, yes. to be seen not for sexuality, to be seen as a person, yeah. as a healing person, as a person in recovery, um was radical
2: for me. Yeah.
1: And and it changed my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just know I'm not alone. My entire life I believed the light. You are all alone. Yeah. Yeah. And of course I believed it because the, the crucial people in my life, each parent had in different ways left me. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: So of course I believed it. But recovery for me was beginning And to some extent still is, just in a vastly different way now, 28 years later, this journey away from I am alone.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: I am deeply connected with a God greater than myself and to other healthy people in my life.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I love the terminology that Kurt Thompson uses when he says that we all have a need to feel felt. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> I love uh, that. Yes. Yeah. To make this emotional connection with other people. And I don't know about you, but for me, that has been and continues to be a bit of a struggle because I was uh I tend to intellectualize. I wanted to think my way into recovery. And certainly there there are ideas to accept and internalize there and there are things to do, but there is also this kind of emotional connection. Open up the heart. Which what? if which if you are a survivor of trauma or abuse, you know, neglect, abandonment, that okay. seems very, very, very risky.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. Now, our listeners don't know this yet, but you, uh, you're the director of Bethesda Workshops. Right. Uh, you're a licensed uh, therapist, CSAT, uh, licensed uh LMFT, what's that? Marriage right. and Family? Marriage
1: and Family Therapy. Right,
0: right, 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 right. right. Uh, you, uh, so you, uh, you help an enormous amount of people. In fact, you have just wrapped up uh, filming with Jim Kress 12 hours of video that will be used as an intensive to train counselors in the upcoming AACC virtual conference, right?
1: Right. American Association of Christian Counselors, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Yes.
0: Uh, and, uh, you're involved in all kinds of, you know, boards and academic, uh, you're working, you're working to get, se- or are you still involved in the effort to get sex addiction finally, come on, wake up recognized as a real disorder? Or did I, I'm you-
1: not, I had a tiny, tiny little role in, in that, uh, mostly just being very supportive of it. Yeah. Um, there've been strides made about, about that, uh, which is
0: good. Right. Well, yeah, that's a bit of an aside, but tell me about that because, you know, we still hear this all the time. Sex addiction isn't real. That's an excuse. That's an explanation. Right. You know, uh, right. it's a, people just want to evade the consequences of their, right. you know, volitional acts and they want to. Yeah. Right. Uh, what's the status right now? Do you know?
1: Well, yes. Um, of course, we believe that about alcoholism, about drug addiction. We believe that about yes. any kind of addictive behavior. Um, we have kind of understand that behavior is as addictive as substances.
2: Mm-hmm. And to some
1: extent, when it's something like sex or food, probably more because the supply is always there. Yeah. The supply for for sex exists within the brain, all of the neurochemistry and all of that. And food, you do have to eat to survive. So, so behaviors are highly addicted. Um, sex addiction, as a term, is still not in the American Diagnostic Manual, the DSM, mm-hmm. the latest version. Uh, for all kinds of, I would say largely political reasons, Mm -hmm. um, because it was at one point it got taken out and they say they need more research. Of course we need more research. And there's plenty to show that this is a valid disorder from a clinical. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. If you
1: want to use the word medical standpoint, um, within Europe, the ICD, the, um, international classification of diseases, which is the rest of the world's, um, (laughs) Diff, you know, diagnostic manual. Of course, you know, Americans think they're different. So like we can have everyone die of COVID because we can't get our stuff together. Yeah, but,
0: right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, so we're, we're wonderful in our differences and our uniqueness. Uh, and this is kind of an almost, that's certainly not that dire, but, but a thing. When, when people who are struggling with genuine behavioral health disorders, mm-hmm. like sex addiction, and they need to use their insurance, which is another whole thing for our country, then they need their deal codified. Right, sure. And um, and that's helpful. And it's not, but it is in Europe. Uh, it's not called sexual addiction. It's called compulsive sexual behavior disorder or something like that. Uh, it's mm-hmm. listed more as a compulsion, which those of us in the addiction field, it's not quite right. And it's a marvelous start. Um, yes.
2: Yes. And
1: they're open to being to looking at it within more of an addiction category as, as the future goes on. So that is a very, very positive step. Um, it doesn't affect what I do or what Bethesda Workshops does because we don't accept insurance and we haven't it ever, it's just too much. But, yeah. but for many people to have even this step is very helpful. And it's a fair number of the American insurance companies will accept an ICD code rather than a DSM code. So that's helpful
0: okay all right well tell us a little bit about bethesda first of all uh you know how did that get started and what uh, you you guys have moved into a building within the last few years uh and it's just phenomenal work tell us tell our listeners a little bit about bethesda
1: um i'd love to tell you about bethesda workshops um in the mid 90s no one still was talking too much about sex addiction, but for sure, nobody was talking about how it affected women. Mm-hmm. And I had become associated uh, with Patrick Carnes, but also with one of his protégés, Dr. Mark Laser.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Mark brought into the Christian community concepts about sexual addiction as a construct and as healing and recovery from it, the same way Pat Carnes did within the secular community. So a huge, huge, huge person. And I, again, my mama god, as I call her, has so paved every bit yeah. of the way for me. And the association with Mark Laser, who sadly died about a year ago at uh, the end of this month, um, was just enormous. I was working with him uh, through an organization, doing some short-term workshops, intensives, for partners of male sex addicts. Uh-huh. He and a colleague, it's Eli Machen, had started workshops for male sex addicts. Then their wives wanted help, so they started as partners. And late, late one night, it was based in Tupelo, Mississippi. I was driving home to Nashville in the middle of nowhere, and I heard God speak to me. Mm. I mean, I stopped and got out of my car. Wow. And God said, Marnie, you can do this for female sex addicts. No one is doing anything for women who struggle with sex addiction. I called Mark the next morning, and in eight weeks, we had 12 women from across the country at the first intensive in 1997 for female sex addicts. Wow. To our knowledge, it's the first dedicated treatment for female sex addicts anywhere in the world. So that began in 97, Mark and I partnered together, um, dealing with all the different populations affected by sex addiction, male addicts, um, partners of addicts then couples affected by sex addiction. And then as his dear wife, Debbie went back to school, got her graduate degree, wanted to work, with him which had always been his heart's desire um they split off Uh, so he and i started bethesda together i was doing workshops healing for men for women he was doing some um i forget the name faithful and true probably workshops for men through his organization and as we came to partner to do all of that in nashville under my direction we were saying what what name should we call this? We, we need a new name that's not either one of ours. And at the exact same time, we both said Bethesda Workshop. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: As of the, the story, which I can tell sure. you in a minute. So that was yeah. the beginning. And it's grown now from 1997. You know, this is 2000, we're taking this as something. So um, a, a long time. And yeah. just blossomed into dealing with all of the populations that struggle with sex addiction in a very short term format, just four days. We do 12 clinical hours a day, though. So it's extremely intense when we are in person right with COVID. We are online uh, for now. But in that four days, it's the equivalent to 30 day inpatient program. Sure. So, so what um, the, the model is that then people have to go home and walk it out. But yeah. that's recovery anyway. <laughs> that's yeah. healing anyway is right. to walk out through 12 steps, through counseling, through other positive steps. So, I am blessed and grateful to get. To do it. We're located in Nashville. Again, anybody can attend now because globally, um, because we're online. When we go back to being able to be in person, people come to us from all across the country and to some extent um, other parts of the world for four intense days.
0: Well, you've been hugely instrumental in the lives of a great many men in the Samson Society already. And, uh, you know, word on the street in Samson is (laughs) the place to go when you hit the wall. Uh, and the place where you know you can get some help, and then there's going to be some help for your spouse or partner yes yes uh, and it's it's doable oh,
1: thank you uh,
0: but it, it isn't kindergarten this is I mean this is
1: this is know. heavy, especially in person, this is big 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 deal yeah
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so at this point, you've interacted, Marnie with thousands of uh, recovering sex addicts, or those looking over the edge into recovery and wondering if they have the courage to leap, sure. uh, and uh, you know you've formed bonds of respect and affection. You've kept mm. up with people. I'm wondering, you know, I'm wondering about the the uh, the trends that you see. I don't, this is a this is a big question to ask, and I didn't give you any advance warning that you might even have to think about this, but. Do you, off the top of your head, do you see any uh, pattern uh, of uh, the the mental or emotional approach that that a person takes that improves their likelihood of successful recovery?
2: Yeah. Is it something?
0: Is it? Okay, go ahead.
1: (laughs) I interrupted you, though.
0: Yeah, no, no, go ahead.
1: Uh, yes, the trauma-informed approach that is just uh, so solidly now within yeah. the work of anybody who knows anything at all about treating this issue
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: is is life-changing. Uh, yeah. It's been around forever because that was Karn's model that Mark Laser brought into the Christian community. So it surprises me a little bit that people are talking about, oh, how how. Novel. This is. It's not. Parns knew that from the beginning. My therapist knew from the beginning. But what is different is now there's lots of research to yeah. back of how trauma affects the brain,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and how that can take this cognitive part offline. Sure. It's the cognitive part that participates in twelve steps. Right. Now some of the steps are designed inventories to get you deeper, but still not ready to do trauma work. And and many. Traumatize addicts, this cognitive part, the woundedness inside the, the lower part of the brain, the automatic part, the limbic system, the base of the brain is going to hijack this every single time.
2: Sure. Right.
1: And so to, to now we have language for that. Mm-hmm. And we have words like attachment and abandonment and neurochemistry and neurobiology and brain trauma and encoding and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. It is so much easier to teach therapists how to how to help people coming from this core framework. And it's wonderful.
0: Right. Right.
1: That it's it's a game changer.
0: But if I have the willingness to face my trauma and I have the help of an informed therapist who can guide me in that work, that's going to vastly improve my chances for a successful recovery.
1: Absolutely. In fact, okay. I believe there's almost zero chance of successful recovery. Maybe sobriety, but you know, what my drug and alcohol friends would call the white knuckling kind of recovery. Right, right. Without dealing with your stuff. Right, right, right. Because addiction is the top layer. It's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not the problem. It's the solution to a problem. False solution.
0: Right. Right. Now you also uh, mentioned a word a couple times early in telling your story that you talked about attachment. What's the role of attachment in addiction and recovery?
1: but first is critical. It's role is absolute survival uh, mm-hmm. of the human species. Um, attachment is what generates effective neuronal development in the brain. Sure. It's, it's what helps us regulate, you know, not be too high, not be too, too low. Um, it to live within clinically, it's called this window of tolerance, where I can both think and feel, mm-hmm. uh, where I'm I'm keeping it in the road. You know, I'm keeping it, um, I'm stable. Right. Well, when we have attachment breaches, and this isn't rocket science. This is caregivers, primarily parents, who are making eye contact, right, reciprocating. We we're on zoom and as I'm looking at you, we're kind of in the shadows. You are kind of in the shadows, but I can still see you nodding your head and you're smiling at me and you're you're right. engaging with me and your facial expressions. That's attunement. Right. That's reciprocity. Infants have to have that for healthy brain development. Right. And we do a pretty abysmal job in our culture about that because you know how we parent?
0: Looking at the phone. Like looking this. at the phone, yeah.
1: And that takes away all of that facial expressions and interaction and gestures and the prosody of speech just oh hey baby how are you you know and, yeah, right, right, right. and the eye contact um and so we're coming to understand i i love the work your, your readers would Bessel van der kolk k-o-l-k yeah. the body keeps the score Fantastic. you want to understand about this and understand about how addiction is a coping mechanism Uh, and all of the brain chemistry about that it's written for a lay audience i found it um very compelling and a slow read as a Mm. clinician i'm Mm going to go back i have just finished rereading it and i wanted to go back and and do that i i was aware of it when it first came out probably i don't know four years ago or something um but to just understand the importance of the brain
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and and when we understand that, it, it puts addiction in a completely different light, whether it's drugs and alcohol or especially, I think, these behavioral addictions, um, food, binging, yeah. hurting, sex, gambling, shopping, yeah. ch- cleaning, yeah. performing,
2: yeah.
0: all
1: of those. It it puts it in a completely different light.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, this has been so fascinating. Before we, before we go, first of all, I want to make sure that everybody knows how to reach Bethesda. Before we get there, I want to ask you this. Uh, What um, are the kind of daily, at this point, almost habituated practices, the things that you do on a daily basis that you kind of at this point know are essential to keep you in the middle of the road? Mm -hmm. I know, you know, I've been in recovery now for 20 years, you know, and there's a saying, no matter how far down the road to recovery you go, you're always the same distance from the ditch. Right. So, and I, you know, and I have drifted off the edge in those 20 years. Sure. Me too. Okay. So the question is uh, what I'm asking you is what, what are the kind of the basic simple practices to do to help keep you more toward the middle of the road?
1: Yeah. Uh, I love, I love the question. And These are disappointingly simple, but you know, the slogan recovery is, is very simple, it's just not easy.
2: Yeah, uh,
1: yeah, Living life differently is awfully simple, so much mm-hmm. more simple than we make it. But for me, it's, it's still hard at different times. Uh, first are just the basics of physical self-care.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I was diagnosed in 2005 with a pretty significant autoimmune disorder, which completely rocked my world. I struggled just to barely function for several years. I'm wow. completely in remission now, but it taught me the importance of nutrition. Mm-hmm. More than that, the importance of healthy sleep, mm-hmm. the importance of a moderate kind of exercise. Part of this thing is, is this real strenuous exercise tips you over the edge. Um, okay. So you have to be careful about that. But, um, And ultimately, all of that was very healing, and all of those are still huge practices in my life. Uh, More recently, meaning last eight or 10 years, I've added meditation, which I had never particularly done before, and that's been marvelous. Uh, I just so love doing that. I've added uh, a Christian version of spiritual direction, and that is wonderful, that inviting uh, God or Jesus, the God of my understanding, into different internal places yeah. uh, has radically helped my insides. Um, wow. Wow. Um, Vanderkult talks about meditation and some of those kinds of things about how that, that happens. Uh, I've taken up hiking in the last two years. I'm an old woman, I'm 64 years old, uh, but had always loved the outside and, the outdoors and grew up outdoors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not hiking or camping or anything like that. My father certainly didn't do that, but just love and being outside and had gotten away from that and mm-hmm. was very much a workaholic. Both. There was a whole lot of work to do and work filled some, some voids, emotional voids. Yeah. That were like. um, and so I had a good friend who climbed Mount Kilimanjaro mm-hmm. and just watching him train and hearing about it and stuff really got me into hiking you're in nashville i'm in nashville Uh, i'm a regular on gainier ridge
0: uh, oh nice
1: yes out at um lake and and other places i've been hiking here in the mountains Um, Mm. so to to be quiet to learn to be quiet to learn to be still i think the other biggest piece is i am passionate about my connection with safe people i mentioned i do kind of a quasi 12-step ish thing I took myself out of 12-step rooms eventually after I was working clinically in the field because they were filled with my clients. Sure. In Nashville where there were multiple meetings a day, it just, I think that's a healthy boundary, but I didn't replace it with anything else Mm -hmm. until a relapse taught me, I need to do something different. And so a a female woman in recovery who had become a good friend, We began a women's-only closed twelve-step meeting, so that none of us—we're all professionals. None, none of us refer clients or patients or parishioners into it, right? um, So that we can keep it safe for for those of us who professionally are out there in the field. Unfortunately, there's not a Caduceus-type meeting for sex addiction,
2: Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. so um, you know it's hard for some professionals who are helping other people to find some of that help. Um, And so we've done life together for 20 years and just dear, dear, dear women to me. And I am so grateful for that. Um, I had recently gone through something that I won't share the particulars about, but my point is I recognize as I was reaching out to people, I would consider inner circle for support and processing. I have like a dozen and a half people Mm. with whom I shared some information and and what was happening in my life. And when I stepped back and looked at that, I just like, holy. Yeah. (laughs) I am so richly, richly blessed. These aren't even people like yourself whom I completely trust. And I know you would do anything you could do to be. Yeah, yeah, Yeah,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. I
1: could have. But I mean, these are people with whom I'm really doing life, not just
2: yeah, yeah, yeah like
1: people yeah. I knew would get it and and yeah, yeah, yeah. And be prayerful. I mean, I'm just like, wow. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: so so those things are um, are the daily things practicing gratitude.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. I
1: historically was a glass half-empty person, or maybe glass. What glass? There's no hell. There's no <laughs>
0: <glass>. <laughs> Who stole it's the glass? Right. running
1: away. <laughs> from a trauma standpoint, when the worst thing happens to you before you're five years old, yeah, you have a parent. Your brain learns to always expect the worst.
0: Sure, right, yeah.
1: And, and so that was helpful to me because for years I would think, what's the matter with my recovery that I'm still always... Kind of negative inside, and yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and you know, suspicious and and anxious. I carry a fair amount of anxiety in my body that is actually dissipating some recently. Mm. I'm so grateful for that. Um, and when when I attended more to to my brain, I'm working with a somatic experiencing practitioner, nice. it's a diff- specific kind of of clinical therapy that's working with the body and this neurochemistry and stuff. And that's been kind of miraculous now at year 28 in recovery.
2: Wow.
1: Um, helpful. So, and I'm finding myself overwhelmed with gratitude. Uh, you told me before we started, you're so kind, you know, you, you look so healthy and happy and all that. Mm. I am, Nate. Mm-hmm. I, I am. And, um, life is good. It's not without its problems and significant challenges. And something is different inside now after all these years. And believe me, I mean, it's been wonderful compared to any worse day acting out
0: yeah uh, yeah oh since, sure absolutely <laughs> Since, since uh, 1991
1: even before sobriety in 1992 but yeah but there's a deeper level here and i'm so grateful
0: oh well uh i have so enjoyed our conversation i know oh, our listeners will too um if they before i let you go Any of our listeners want to connect with you, with your staff, with Bethesda workshops, explore how they might be able to take their recovery or the recovery of a loved one to the next level. They want to help somebody. What's the best way for them to get a hold of Bethesda or you?
1: It's to access our website, which is Bethesda, uh, like Bethesda, Maryland. So Mm B-E-T-H-E-S-D-A workshops, floor with an S, dot org. So okay. workshops.org. the .org is important. Um, that's the best way. There's tons and tons of information free to read just about sex addiction for addicts, for partners, for teens and adolescents, and for their parents.
0: Oh, teens and adolescents now. Yes. Oh, yeah, really? Started, I didn't know this, Marnie.
1: Yes. We oh, fantastic for adolescents who are struggling with problematic sexual behavior. It's gender specific, again, yeah. like all of our stuff is. That short-term treatment, you just don't need the distraction of having to deal with the other
2: right, gender. Right, right, right.
1: Um, but they have to come with their parents, and guess who doesn't want to come?
0: <laughs> it's not a) Wow. They
1: are thrilled when they communicate with me or with somebody else on my staff, and they hear, let me promise you, we are not gonna beat you up. In fact, we are gonna go after your parents.
2: Wow, you know? and wow. we're
1: going to create a safe place where y'all can have really hard conversations. Like, being in this family is shit. This yeah. is this. <laughs> I, I, Want to know why I drink? Well, let me tell you why I drink.
2: Yeah. I mean,
1: that's not true for everybody, but but for some people it is. So I'm so excited about that. Uh, I can't imagine what it would have been like as an adolescent myself to uh, get help. Oh wow! But I'll tell you, Nate. We are having an extremely difficult time getting that program off the ground. We started actually three years ago. Wow. And we've canceled many more workshops than we've held because parents won't come.
2: Yeah.
0: So
1: it's a group intensive designed for at least two families, ideally three or four. And so many times you've had one family that wants to come and nobody else. Wow. And we've canceled it. So this this fall, the top plate for me professionally is to work with my staff of adolescent specialists and we don't know how, but we're going to figure out how to do an intensive with just one family so that we can help the one starfish,
2: yeah. you know, that's the state.
1: <laughs> and and so that maybe that'll get us some traction. And the challenge yeah. is when it's just parents and a teen, wow, that's intense.
2: And yeah. when it's everybody
1: yeah. else, that, that group experience diffuses some of that. So we've got to figure out how to get over that. And, and I don't know, but I trust that my mom and God is going to show us.
0: So
1: well, we're going to do that.
0: I'm so happy to hear about this, and, I, I, and I'm, I'm battling a little shame. But I feel like I should know that you've been doing this adolescent work because I get asked about it all the time, and I have to say, well, Samson Society doesn't have anything for adolescents. I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. If, it's, if it's around porn stuff, I say go to Fight the New Drug. That's the best right. thing That's I know. Right. Capstone. Okay. Yeah. Capstone yeah.
1: And Cersei, Arkansas, does great work with male adolescents, like 13 to 22 or something like that.
2: Okay. All right. for
1: For listeners, you need to know about Capstone. If uh, it's a faith-based but highly clinical program, um, terrific work with adolescents and their families. But All right now for a shorter, smaller option, and by the first of the year, I, we are going to figure out how to do this with just one family, even if we do it kind of poorly, we're gonna say, will you come and, and be guinea pigs with us and help us figure out how to create a safe environment when it's just your family?
0: Okay. In the meantime, I'm gonna do all I can do to make sure thank that you. uh, you're not stuck with just one family. So thank you.
1: That would be awesome. Would be- <laughs> we have, ma'am, we have honed that curriculum. It is amazing. It's largely experiential. It's not talk therapy. It's yeah, not, yeah. you know, um, it's family systems. Everyone is a part of this problem and therefore a part of this solution. It's, right, right. it's really wonderful. But back to Bethesda workshops, we've got all kinds of tons of free stuff to, to read, uh, print information. I'm a journalist. I was a journalist before, a therapist, a writer. So there's lots. It's real. Our website's text heavy. Just build a bridge.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but there's also um, resources of recommended reading. We have a small series of podcasts. Some of them are clinical, some of them are spiritual um, we have a Facebook page, uh, we're Bethesda Workshops, TN, for Tennessee. Uh, we you have a
0: wonderful have... New, n- newsletter, Marnie. I love it when it shows yeah, right, up.
1: In the yeah, I blog about every other week, generally
0: speaking. Yeah, yeah,
1: uh, yeah. I, I sent one yesterday. Uh, you'll have to read about uh, being up here at the lake in the lab. Oh, I haven't right. seen it yet. Okay. All of that. But, um, so... You know, we're just doing what we're doing with the tiny staff. um, But there's still a whole lot of free resources. There's contact information for just contacting the the office. My email is on there, mfree at bethesdaworkshops.org. Email is the best way to reach me. I can Mm -hmm. respond to email much quicker than phone calls. And we have some other people who usually are, I'm going to frankly pass off those those phone calls to in the beginning.
2: But if somebody really
1: wants to talk with me, I'll talk with them.
0: Okay. All right.
1: Thank you for letting me tell about Bethesda Workshops. BethesdaWorkshops.org.
0: Thank you so much, Marty. Well, it's been a privilege. Listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Well, there you have it. I told you that was going to be a good conversation. It's always a privilege when we have uh, a time, any time at all, to spend with Marnie. And uh, once again, I'm so grateful that she kept her appointment with us, even even on vacation. Well, we are rapidly approaching the end of the hour. Uh, David usually uh, reminds us about uh, the great sponsor for our podcast, GetBetterHelp.com. He tells us all about the the uh, the. the therapists that are available the way we can move from one therapist to another. If we want the fact that they uh, are available at any time, it's reasonable. Uh, I don't have the script. I don't know. I do know that if you go to getbetterhelp.com/positivesobriety, slash uh, positive sobriety, you get a 10% discount uh, uh, at the beginning of your time with get better help. If you aren't in therapy and you don't have access to a good therapist uh, or an affordable therapist in your area, Please investigate this possibility, getbetterhelp.com. Well, our thoughts are with David. Our thoughts also are with Rex, uh, the producer, engineer, the guy who really, the the guy who does the magic and makes this happen, uh, Rex Schnelly. He caught the plague. I don't know if you heard this, but he actually came down with the COVID. And it's scary for Rex because he's a type one diabetic. And uh, he uh, also uh, passed it along or he got it from, we don't know exactly the sequence, but it looks like his wife caught it too and she has medical issues of her own. So that's all scary and a bit frightening. If you are a praying person, please keep uh, Rex and Deb in your prayers. Uh, Although Rex assured me that despite the fatigue, uh, he is... Committed, he called to say, Hey, uh, what are we going to do the podcast this week? He's doing it anyway. He's doing it even though he's sick. That's amazing to me. Thank you, Rex. All right. Uh by the way, before we close, a reminder: our email address is positive sobriety at gmail.com. Please send us any suggestions for guests. Any comments, your reaction to this episode or any other, we love to hear from you at sobriety at gmail.com. Well, that's it for this week. Until next time, I'm uh, I'm Nate, uh, he's David, and the other guy is Rex. We're all your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer, Rick Schnelli. Music by Rick Schnelli. Theme music by Matt Ulrich. Uh, Hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett. Uh, Wardrobe (laughs) by Kathy Gifford.